that just chanted, not two, not three. Straight away, go straight away, four. That's where the way is. Not two, not three. Connects very well to this case of the Hekigandoku. The dialogue of Manjushri and Wucho. Point. Determining dragons and snakes, distinguishing jewels and stones, separating the profound and the naive, to settle all uncertainty. If you haven't an eye on your forehead and a talisman under your elbow, time and time again, you will miss the point immediately. Right at this very moment, seeing and hearing are not obscure. Sound and form are purely real. Tell me, is it black? Is it white? Is it crooked? Is it straight? At this point, how will you discriminate? The case. Manjushri asked Wucho, where have you just come from? Wucho said, the south. Manjushri said, how is the Buddhist teaching being carried on in the south? Wucho said, Monks of the last age have little regard for the rules of the discipline. Manjushri said, How numerous are the congregations? Wucho said, Some 300, some 500. Wucho asked Manjushri, How is it being carried on here? Manjushri said, Ordinary and sages, ordinary people and sages dwell together. Dragons and snakes intermingle. And Wucho asked, how numerous are the congregations here? Manjushri said, in front, three by three. In back, three by three. Reverse. The thousand peaks twist and turn, the color of indigo. Who says Manjushri was conversing with him? It is laughable how many people on Qing Liang. In front, three by three, and in back, three by three. on this planet were quite an odd one. We need to practice what every other creature embodies naturally. At the source of our true nature, we have a tremendous capacity for wisdom, abundant compassion, but, but, we go against it and act in ways that are unwise, unskillful, not compassionate, which of course produce and perpetuate the three poisons, greed, anger, ignorance, hatred. Yesterday, in Virginia, Hatred. Just that. 
It's not personal. But we make it personal. We have a great potential for being a force of goodness in this world. And when we are in line with the source, this potential comes to fruition. Yet, when we take time to observe, we see that even a tiny ant is doing a much better job than us. Better job in knowing how to be in alignment with the souls. And how to function from an unknowable wisdom. At the level of souls, and human beings are not differentiated. They have equal ability to tap it, to function on it. Of course, on the level of form, two different kinds of species. But that's not the reason why we fuck it up. For an act, the capacity for functioning in alignment with the source is not in question. And he doesn't even know it's doing it. But for us, it is in question. And there are choices to be made. Because right next to this great capacity for wisdom lies great capacity for ignorance or stupidity. as great. And if we don't take the time to carefully examine, if we don't take on a disciplined practice, this other capacity is fed, it takes over, and it runs uncontrollably as yesterday in Virginia, which of course is one of many instances. And it does that to a point of destroying its host, you, us. Of course, not very wise. So since we have those both capacities, Both can be tapped. So the question is, what, which capacity are you cultivating? Based on yesterday, we are cultivating the capacity for destroying, for ignorance. Fortunately, Fortunately, we found our way to this ancient practice. Practice that can help each of us develop the ability to discern between the two capacities. And then to learn how to skillfully nurture that. How to work with the temptation to feed what is ignorant and harmful. Path that teaches a practitioner to move in alignment with the same wisdom makes the trees bloom in the spring and the leaves fall in the fall. Same wisdom. There's only one, not two, not three. Same wisdom that functions freely through the formation of mountains, rivers, rain. The wisdom that allows us to see that while opinions differ, 
8 does not. So then we don't act upon different opinions. The point of this con begins by looking at the ability to discern, determining dragons and snakes, distinguishing jewels and stones, separating the profound and the naive to settle all uncertainties. All uncertainties. There is uncertainty. And we come here to practice. To practice knowing how to settle that. To put it to rest. So then the rest of our days on this planet can be lived from be lived from wisdom, compassion, not from ignorance. But that distinguishing raises two important aspects of practice, which is knowing how to be a teacher, but also knowing how to be a student. Now, the responsibility of a Dharma teacher is to guide us to the source. And then to discern where the student is at and what is needed to bring about further deepening. And then there's also the responsibility of being a true student. To have the willingness to cut through difficulties, frustrations. To learn to discern between harmful reactivity and constructive receptivity. Which I think often gets confused when being a student. You know, when being guided, you don't always want to hear what we are told. We resist that. In fact, if we don't resist that, maybe we should look for another teacher. If we don't feel uncomfortable, if we don't get triggered, we're not going deep. We're only perpetuating. No, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, I had a <coughs> talk with someone in Doksan. He was telling me what he was doing, and he was wondering why is he doing what he's doing. And I said it. I said exactly what I saw. Without getting into details, I said, here's, here's what, why you're doing this. He looked at me and he said, you're killing me. It was very genuine. I'm willing to kill, but you have to be willing to die. Which means when you get triggered, don't make a big deal out of that. There's plenty of Everybody gets triggered. To know how to be a student, and it goes into anything, not just Zen, Aikido as well, of course. I remember talking with my teacher a long time ago, Aikido teacher, a long time ago about it, and asking him about teaching, and he said, when he looks around, teaches a class, he looks around and he sees who is really trying to do what he's showing, who is there just to show what they know rather than open up and learn? Well, who is there to practice comfortably? And who is there to mess with that comfort? Who really says, I don't know and I'm here to learn? 
And he said that when he sees people that really are clenching, holding on tightly to what they know and just refuse to be taught, to open up, he says he walks away from it. He doesn't push it. But when the time comes that they are willing to die, he's there to help. But this, is, this process always takes both a teacher and a student. So coming here too, participating in a zazaka. I was telling yoga earlier today that I'm grateful to all of you who showed up, but I'm also grateful for those who didn't show up today. Because it teaches us all why we need to keep doing this. how crucial and essential it is that we do that. Because we practice for everybody. So for what from what seems to be discouraging, we can actually become encouraged. You know, what Zen is teaching us cannot be taught or learned. But it can be reflected by a teacher and then awakened in the student. And it sounds paradoxical, right? Because why have a teacher if I don't have to, if I cannot learn this or it cannot be taught? Pai Chang expressed this beautifully when he got up in front of everybody and he asked, do you know, he said to everybody, well, do you know that in the entire land of China, back then, he said there are no Zen teachers. And that was during the golden era of Zen. Lots of really good Zen teachers, many practitioners. To one student, one monk got up and asked, what about all those who need communities? And said, I didn't say there's no Zen. I just said there are no teachers. We have to recognize that in order to see, we have to practice. And in that practice, there is a teacher and a student. And we have to open up to it, although there is resistance in us. We have to open up to it and allow that to penetrate and shatter the structure we create. We want to let go and yet we don't want to let go. At the same time, there's a pushing and pulling. And all teachers feel that. So, a teacher can go only as far as the student is willing to. That's why it's equal responsibility. You remember that story about this, I told you before, about this guy who wants to study with the teachers, China. And the teacher says, okay, come with me to the river. They go down to the river. So let's go inside the water. They go in the water. The teacher takes the student head, dunks it in the water, keeps him there for a long minute, then lets him out. And the student, the guy, got out of the water, regained his breath. The teacher asked him, when you want Underwater, what was the thing you wanted most? And he said, air. And the teacher said, when you want to teach, to study as much as you wanted air, come back. 
We don't do that, but we have to understand that that's how the practice should be taken. Or we do it in other ways. Sometimes it feels like there's no oxygen. I can't breathe. I don't want to come to a Zazikawa session because I can't breathe. I want to stay at home with the familiar because that's where my oxygen is. That's an option too. And the pointer continues. If you haven't an eye on your forehead and a talisman under your elbow, time and time again, you will miss the point immediately. And the eye on the forehead is the eye that cuts two to one. The eye that sees that not two, not three, straight ahead runs the The talisman is a stone that was worn behind the elbow by Taoist masters. They believed to have given them magical powers. And in Zen, seeing through the eye on the forehead actually makes us realize that there is magic, but it lies in eating, drinking, walking around, riding the subway, dealing with day-by-day -day challenges, magic. But we can't see that because the two eyes separate. Seeing from the third eye, you can walk around without hesitation, knowing that there's no other place to be, there's nothing else to do, with the mess, with the chaos, in the chaos. So the pointer is asking us, right at this very moment, Seeing and hearing are not obscure, sound and form are purely real. Tell me, is it black? Is it white? Confusing. Is it crooked or is it straight? I don't know, I'm trying to figure this out. At this point, at this point of being confused, how would you describe it? And it's saying that it's not obscure. So it's saying that what you think is preventing you from seeing is not covering what you want to see. And it's also asking you to verify. Who told you that Crooked is not straight. And the black is not white. That's the question. That's the task of a true student. And the battle of his con is somewhat unusual. Since the two characters here did not actually live at the same time, historical time. Manjushi was actually a historical figure from the time of the Buddha. But also, his image is a representation of wisdom. As we have him here sitting on a lion right next to the Buddha. And Samantabada on the other side, on the elephant. Manjushri representing wisdom. Samantabhadra, compassion. The six virtues. 
six paramitas. You look carefully, you see six tasks on the elephant. Wisdom and compassion. Non-dual. If we see through the eye and forehead. That's all that is. Mindrush is also called the teacher of the seven Buddhas. Actually, Shakyamuni Buddha being the seventh one, six before him. But what is really meant by that is that he is the teacher within the souls. The teacher of everything and everyone. lived during the 7th century in China around the same time as Hunan, the 6th ancestor. At least it's what we know from recorded history, bits and pieces of it. So this encounter begins at a time where Wuchu was traveling to visit Mount Wutai, which was known as the sacred dwelling of the spirit of Manjushu. When he came to a barren area on the mountain, there's nothing there. All of a sudden, someone appeared and produced a temple and took him in for the night. At this point, he did not know yet that this is Manjush. So, the dialogue begins there, where he asked Wucho, where have you just come from? And Cho said, from the south. And the footnote to that says, there is nothing outside the great vastness. Why is there, nevertheless, a south? The one mind contains everything, yet south, north, how could that be? How could you come from here and go to here? And this footnote, there is nothing outside the great vastness. Why is there nevertheless a south? This opens it up completely. In fact, that should be enough. That's all we need to hear. If we listen. <clears throat> if we are ready. If we are ready to die. So Manjushri then asked him, how is the Buddhist teaching being carried on in the South? And Cho said, monks of this last age have little regard for the rules of discipline. Manjushri asked, how numerous are the congregation? And Cho said, some 300, some 500. But listen to this line again. Monks of this last age have little regard for the rules of discipline. This is one of the reasons I wanted to bring up this point today. It's as if Wucho is a practitioner from this century. describing the current state of practice, declining. And it's as relevant as it gets when we look at how we function. And us, as, as wisdom practitioners, how we regard the Dharma. where everything comes to life. You know, when you look at the state of our world, there's no question about the urgency, urgency to revive the dawn. But then what we need to do is examine, are we doing it? How are we doing it? Now, today, 
2017, summer. And this is a great time to slow down, naturally. Take time to spend with family, friends. Take a break. But take a break from what? Can we loosen up while maintaining determined practice? Can we hang out, chill out, while never stopping the practice, stopping the practice itself? Can we go through the changing seasons, externally, internally, while not neglecting to nurture the three treasures at the core of practice, the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Because I think that often we take breaks from that. And I'm speaking to all of us, those who are here or those who will Listen. And asking that question, and we have to ask this question. Without answering, yes, I am. I am maintaining the Dharma and everything, and I'm doing what I need to be doing. Isn't that wonderful? Or I am not. I'm giving up. I have given up. Because it's neither here nor there. We're not grading. We're just asking. And then, and then, it's your life that needs to give the answer, not your mouth. Your everyday life. And it all comes down to you. If, if your practice falls apart, or when your practice falls apart, this wisdom tradition falls apart. Not wisdom, but wisdom tradition as a practice declines. And if your practice is maintained well, this tradition thrives. And it does disintegrate. This was a long time ago. They were talking about it being disintegrated. It meaning the practice. People of this age have little regard to the rules of discipline. how ancient and how vital, timeless. But we need to appreciate the fact that we have encountered the Dharma and we are here. And after we are done with appreciating, we have to keep it alive. So, Wucho asked Manjushri, how is it being carried on here? Manjushri said, ordinary people and sages dwell together, dragons and snakes intermingle. And here again, Manjushri's answer goes right into the heart of this century. We are practicing. We are suburb, city dwellers. Right? And often, often people express this frustration of being a practitioner yet spending most of the time with others who do not practice. Maybe practice something else, practicing delusion. Yet, this is what we practice. Dragons and snakes. <laughs> 
Nintendo. Now it's true that most of the time we are spending with those who have not chosen to practice. But it is equally true that the precious jewel is not more than a stone. A true dragon does not reject its own snake food. Manjushri is using the words dwelling together, to dwell together, intermingle. referring to the way wisdom functions. Wisdom recognizes stupidity. Works with it. Purifies. And that's how we need to do the work. It's easy to hate. then we practice, it becomes a lot easier to love, a lot easier. <coughs> so Ucha said, how numerous are the congregations? How many? How many people? Manjushri said, in front, three by three, in back, three by three. Numbers. Three and three, six, three by three, nine, times two, eighteen, thirty-six. How many? Little Kwan says, count the stars in heaven. How many are there? This is not a practice of numbers. If it was, I don't think it would be. Now we chant human beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Numberless. How do you understand numberless? And yet, how can you take a responsibility, their responsibility to save them all? I vow to save them all. It doesn't say, I vow to save some. No. All. We chant it, but what do we do with it? In the footnote to Manjushri's answer says, crazy words, insane talk. But tell me, how many are they? Even the great compassionate one with a thousand hands could not count them all. The great compassionate one with a thousand hands. Avalokiteshvara, Kanu, Hanzi. Even she cannot count them all. Yet, yet, she's not bothered by not being able to count them all. She is completely immersed in not creating harm, in doing good, in doing good for others. Three pure precepts. How many? And when we deal with questions like that in a verbal, intellectual way, we get lost. We do get lost. So after this exchange in this koan, apparently the two <coughs> then sat down to have some tea. Manjushri held up a crystal bowl and asked, Do they also have this in the south? And Cho said, No. So Manjushri asked, interesting question. He says, what did they use to drink tea over there? Cho was speechless. 
after that he decided to leave and Manjushri ordered Chunti, the attendant, to see into the gate. And when they got to the gate, Wuchar asked the attendant, before, he asked in front three by three, he, sorry, before he said in front three by three, in back three by three, how many is this? The attendant said, all worthy. Wuchar responded, yes. And the attendant said, how many is this? So is this question a problem to solve? Does it trap you? Does it make your mind move? Or does it stop it from moving? Because this is where it's at. How many? How many people are going to show up? Where is everybody? What's going on? I'm here. I've done a lot of good things. How come? No payback yet. What's going on here? How much still do I have to do? How long before I realize? How many? How much? How long? Pick your question. All the same. Then Chur asked him, the attendant, what temple is this? The attendant pointed beyond the direction of the temple. When Chur turned his head, the illusory temple and the attendant all vanished completely out of sight. And as before, it was just an empty valley. And up to this point, Chur didn't know that the teacher he met was actually manifestation of Manjushri. That's why he asked the attendant, what temple is this? And he also asked for the meaning of in front three by three, back three by three. And this is the heart of this quan actually has to be distinguished or clarified right there. Front and back, before, after, you and I, together. When all things return to the One, the One returns to all things. This temple, along with Mantrushri and the attendant, vanished without a trace. Did it exist? Or was it just a dream? Well, the power of a story or a dialogue does not necessarily depend on whether or not it actually took place. When we hear or read about it, we need to go directly to the experience of what is brought to life. And then express it through embodiment. Or in other words, to become the core, as we say often, to become the core. To breathe it, to take it in. The question of did it happen or not belongs to cognition. And is limited by the intellect. But embodiment is an expression of the unborn, which is, of course, unlimited, unstructured, open, free. The verse says, The thousand peaks twist and turn the color of indigo. And underneath that, footnote says, but do you see Manjushri? Do you see? While 
it twists and turns and goes up and goes down. It feels good. It doesn't feel good. You like it. You don't like it. Do you see Manjushu? Moment by moment, do you see? Because it has to come down to this if you want to be a practitioner. Because if you don't see Manjushu, it's an illusion. If you see Manjushri, embody it, it's not even a question. Then it says, next line says, who says Manjushri was conversing with him? Putnot says, even if it were Samantha Bhagla, who is on the other side of the Buddha, I wouldn't pay any attention. He's already stumbled past. I alone am the world honored one, as the Buddha said. So no Manjushri, no Samantha Bhagavad, no Buddha. Who are? Are you willing to be alone? Ronald Shaw said the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And so we all don't. Idea. It is laughable how many the people that's the laughable. How many are there on Ching Liang? Tell me, it says. What is he laughing at? It's already here before speaking of it. In the front, three by three. In back, three by three. And the footnote says, please observe it under your feet. There are thorns in the soft mud, the t-ball falls to the ground, the dish breaks in seven pieces. Again, seven. Seven and three, ten. Another three, thirteen. We can get lost in this for the rest of our lives. And when we do get lost, there is black, there is white, there is a gap, there is a fight, there is someone to hate, somebody that can hate, someone to kill, someone to die. This was, this three by three was versified later on by another Zen master who wrote, <coughs> extending throughout the world is the beautiful monastery. Extending throughout the world. The Manjushri that fills the eyes is the one conversing. He's the one pondering. Not knowing to open the Buddha eye at his words. Wucho turned his head and so only, only the Blue Mountain Cliffs. So, would you miss the opportunity to realize the fundamental truth in the conversation? And the monastery disappeared, along with Mantrush. And then all you saw mountains and cliffs extending far into the horizon. And with that, with that, a new opportunity to awaken manifested itself. Because that is three by three in front, three by three behind, in back. Mountains, rivers, dragons, snakes, opinions. That's where it's at. 
That's where you can meet Manjushri. Face to face. Monk once asked Master Hui Chui, how does, the how does fundamental purity and clarity suddenly give rise to mountains, rivers, and earth? Chui said, how does fundamental purity and clarity suddenly give rise to mountains, rivers, and earth? And of course it seems like repetition. Well, it's not answering. He's just echoing. No. He's not. He's not repeating. He's expressing. And again, when all things return to the one, the one rests peacefully in all things. in the high and in the low, in the black and in the white, in the likes and in the dislikes. How does an ocean function? How does it breathe? And it appears as three, four, five, six, seven endless waves, one after the other which we can try to count. And we do try to count. We have to count if we want to stay alive, actually. But if you can see that the countless waves each expresses the one ocean, Then the eye on the forehead opens up. Or when you see that, you know that the eye on the forehead has opened up. If you don't, if it frustrates you, if you pile the waves up and it becomes a mountain you can't climb anymore, then you know you're seeing through the two eyes. We have to leave it at that. It's lots to say, there's always lots to say, but we have to leave it at that. Three and three in front, three and three behind. Who's counting? 